guys are in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 tonight. That's where we'll be. We're, uh, we're in Ecclesiastes now. So we're going through the wisdom psalms of summer. Wisdom books, not psalms. Wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job will be last. And they progress. As you can probably imagine, Job is the most sophisticated form of wisdom because it's suffering. So we are moving on to Ecclesiastes. Um, you might remember Proverbs was primary school with Lady Wisdom. Ecclesiastes is university with Professor Vanity. So we're moving on up the uh, ladder here. Uh, cool. Well, it's nice to see everyone. Welcome. Um, if you guys uh, have any questions or need prayer, I am here at the end of the service. I will stay down here um, and try to be accessible. Um, but we're glad to see all of you here. And um, I'll share other things at the end with announcements. Okay. So I want to get into this. I'm trying to, I'm really working at trying to finish sermons under 50 minutes. I know that's tall order, not for some pastors, I guess. I guess like when I was in school, they said 20 minutes was the goal. I thought, are you kidding me? They don't know Calvary Chapel then because Pastor Chuck never did that. And every Calvary, John Corson, I sat through 90 minute messages with John Corson. That, but of course he's John Corson. He's allowed to do that. Um, anyways, let's pray before I eat up all my time. <laughs> Father, Father, you are good to us, and you are worthy of our worship. We gather under your name tonight because you have exalted Jesus Christ as the Lord of all, who we serve as our King. And so we ask that your wisdom would come forth to us tonight from your mouth and instruct us in your ways. And Christ, you are the true wisdom of God. You stand at our door and knock, wanting to dine with us. So we open that door now, eager to taste your words of life, our very bread of life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Congratulations, graduates! You have graduated primary school with Lady Wisdom. All rise. You can put the tassel on the other side. Great. Congratulations. You guys did it. Um, of course, that's assuming that you're going to put wisdom into practice. You did it. Um, don't be like the fool. It goes in one ear and out the other. But now it is time for university. And it's going to be a challenge. I hear that your professor can be a bit cynical and cantankerous at times. And... Um, I've heard that his course is very challenging. It's optimistically entitled, All is Vanity. So welcome to Vanity 101 with your professor. Yep, you guys are now in university. The wisdom is intensifying. And here's how it intensifies. Proverbs is like primary school because Proverbs is teaching us the basic groundwork, like the basic ground rules for wisdom. This is, if you do this, this will happen. This is how wisdom is supposed to look. And if you do wisdom, then good things will happen to you. It's a very straightforward and simple book. You remember wisdom and the Proverbs because we went through it. Imagine it like this. When we were in school, grammar school, do you remember the saying, I before E? In how to spell things like receipt. Um, you remember that little rule, I before E. But then all of a sudden... You, become, you, you grow your vocabulary and you learn that not everything is I before E. It's I before E except after C or when sounding like A as in neighbor. 
or way. And then you realize that there's actually about as many words that break that rule as there are that keep that rule. So it's basically I before E, except for this long list of exceptions. Well, that's actually what Proverbs to Ecclesiastes is like. Lady Wisdom taught us the basics of wisdom, I before E. But now Professor Vanity comes along and says, Ah, but have you considered all the exceptions in the universe to Lady Wisdom's instruction? Have you considered that the wise don't always have good lives? And that in the end, they both die the same and both are forgotten? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so we are introduced to what seems to be a very cynical and challenging course. So... Definitely, it was daunting knowing Ecclesiastes was coming up. This is one of those books I've read many times, but can't admit that I've ever completely grasped what it's about. So you can imagine the pressure on me as they were like, oh, Ecclesiastes is coming. It's really coming. Oh, no, it's here. Um, But I need to share with you that my preparation in Ecclesiastes, though never as adequate as you want it to be, has been nothing short of incredible and exciting that this book has had a bad reputation. Many look at it and say, it's just pouting on the fallen world. And it's just complaining, complaining. Uh, Some people are even surprised that Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. But there are other perspectives to this book, some which I found very enriching. One of which is that Ecclesiastes is simply telling us what life is like, and it's being honest. This is what it's like. I know Christians don't like to say what it's really like, but it's really like this. And this is how we live with it. That's its message. It's actually a message of hope. And that's what I hope we can see as we go into it. So here is my thesis, my big idea for what Ecclesiastes is going to teach us. Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live east of Eden. Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live east of Eden. In other words, Ecclesiastes acknowledges the fact, in ways that we're uncomfortable with, that we no longer live in the Garden of Eden, where heaven and earth were one, God and humanity lived in harmony. That's not the world we live in. We live east of Eden. The phrasing comes because Adam and Eve and Cain moved eastward as they continued to sin. We live outside of Eden. And this is the reality that Ecclesiastes helps us to grasp. Because most of the time we go through life pretending that life isn't actually what it is. We live in bubbles. We surround ourselves with comforts. We deny the inevitability of death and of futility. So Ecclesiastes is a wake-up call. This professor is going to shake us and jar us and say, Grow up! You're not in primary school anymore. It's time to see how wisdom works down in the nitty-gritty details and realities of life. So he's building on Lady Wisdom, not not contradicting, but building on and furthering what she's taught us. So you're going to hear this word, vanity. In the English Standard Version, which is what I'm reading from, it is translated vanity. You're going to hear it 38 times in this book. Minor point, right? 38 times, the word vanity. Vanity. Look at verse 2. We'll start with verse 1 and 2. That's how the book starts. It starts with an author, and then it goes into the professor's lecture, which occupies the whole book until the last few verses. The author comes back in and concludes the whole book. Okay? So there's two voices. The author introduces the book. 
The professor preaches his lecture, and then the author comes back to close the book. So here's the author. He says, the words of the preacher we're calling professor. The Hebrew word just means someone who speaks publicly. Um, So preacher, professor. The, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Solomon. Uh, king of Jerusalem. I'm ahead of myself. Um, it seems to be that this preacher is Solomon himself, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And now the author is giving us the summary of the book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's five of your 38 right there. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities. And then verse 3 The preacher begins his lecture. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And we'll get into that in a minute. Vanity. What does it mean? Some people have translated it or talked about it as meaninglessness, but that's wrong. Ecclesiastes is not looking at life and saying it's all meaningless. Because Ecclesiastes will tell us this is better than that. You should aim for this. There are joys in life. That doesn't sound like someone who thinks life is meaningless. Vanity comes from the Hebrew word hevel, H-E-V-E-L. Hevel refers to vapor, it refers refers to mist, and breath. In other words, things that are here very temporarily, and you can't grasp them. Temporary and ungraspable. Um, For example, Psalm 144 verse 4 uses hevel like this. Man is like a breath, Havel. His days are like a passing shadow. Havel is something that is here today, gone tomorrow. That's the idea. Or the way the professor more completely is going to talk about it in this book is Havel is the word he uses to refer to the incomprehensibility of life. Life is incomprehensible. His word for that is hevel, vanity. It's incomprehensible. What does he mean by incomprehensible? Well, for the first half of the book, he's basically going to say, life is brevity. It's short. It doesn't last. And then the second half, he's going to say, life is full of uncertainty. You can't grasp it. You can't understand it. You can't predict it. You can't control it. It eludes our control. That's the incomprehensibility of life. That's what he means by hevel, brevity and uncertainty. Um, But there's another way that hevel is used in the Bible, and this is the most helpful to me. Hevel is the Hebrew word for a name you're very familiar with, Abel. Abel is an Americanized version of hevel. So when Cain kills Abel, what we see in Abel is a symbol of Havel, east of Eden. The uncertainty, the incomprehensibility, the brevity of life. Remember that Abel offered a good sacrifice to God and Cain did not. God favored Abel and Cain was angry and Cain killed Abel. An evil man through evil actions killed a righteous man and he apparently gets away with it. That's the incomprehensibility of life. That good things don't always come to the wise and good things sometimes come to the fools and the evil. It's incomprehensible. And that this good man lives a short life. Abel's life was Havel. It was quick. It was brief. It was here today, gone tomorrow. It was uncertain. It was incomprehensible. 
And most importantly, Abel lived east of Eden. Abel becomes our little symbol, our little man of life outside of the Garden of Eden. And so this is what the preacher means when he says, Havel of Havel. Havel of Havels, all is Havel. All is vanity. Now, he's going to use this word, this phrase, I mean, um, under the sun. Everything under the sun is meaningless. Everything under the sun is Havel. Everything under the sun is hard. It's toilsome. That phrase, under the sun, I take to be his way of saying life outside Eden. Under the sun is everything, but at one time, and he also uses the phrase under heaven, at one time we weren't under any of that. Heaven and earth were together. God and man were in harmonious side by side cooperating. We didn't have this life under the sun. We were in Eden. And so this is his phrase, under the sun, we are east of Eden. This is what life is like east of Eden. This is, he is, in other words, our tour guide for how to live in this world until Christ returns and brings heaven and earth together. He's our tour guide for how to live. So I, I was only recently aware of this eastward movement from Eden recently. And then in um, preparing all this, it just made so much sense that this is what's going on. So I want to share with you guys the biblical movement of the Bible um, it's actually geographically oriented around east and west. I never saw this until recently. Like, there's no, I feel, it's, it's really exciting when you learn something new, you know, you're like, ah! Um, so in Genesis 3.24, when Adam and Eve sin, they are removed from the garden, and there's a cherub there placed to guard the entrance of Eden, and it says it was in the east. You entered Eden in the east. So to be kicked out of Eden was to go eastward. They were, they were thrown eastward out of Eden. So that's why we're saying life east of Eden or life outside Eden. But then when you see Abel kill his, uh, when you see Cain kill his brother Abel, it then says he moved further eastward to the land of Nod. And it actually says east of Eden. That's in Genesis 4.16. Then in Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel. Now, this is where it's a little confusing, and I did my homework on this. Um, some translations talk about the, t- the builders of Babel migrated from the east. Other translations say they migrated to the east to build their tower. I looked up the Hebrew, and it's completely vague. The Hebrew is contextual. It doesn't have to mean either they move to or they move from. So, contextually, it seems to make sense to me that they continue to move eastward and built a tower as far from Eden as possible, because they're trying to redo Eden in the Tower of Babel. And so we see this pattern in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Mankind is moving further and further and further away from the presence of God in Eden. Then the Bible moves westward in Genesis chapter 12, when he calls Abraham toward Canaan which is the complete opposite direction of where humanity had been moving. He calls Abraham westward, and the people of God begin their movement westward. And then it continues with Israel. Um, When they build their tabernacle, as God shows them in the wilderness, it was to face the east, just like the Garden of Eden did. It faced the east, so that when fallen human who lives east of Eden came to worship God, they had to move westward into and through the tabernacle into his presence. 
And then when Israel comes to Canaan, they move from, you might remember how the Old Testament is very big on this. They conquered the eastern land first. Then they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. Well, they moved from east to west when they entered the land. And then Jesus, when he's born, who comes to worship him? Who comes from the east moving westward to worship him? It's the wise men. And then when Jesus is baptized, we know in the book of John that John was on the east side of the Jordan River baptizing people so that they would go into the river and come out back into the promised land, moving from east to west. And so Christ, too, moves from east to west as he begins his ministry. And then he indicates that his return, he says, as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. That's in... um, Matthew chapter 24. And then in Acts, in Acts, we see that Jesus says, go therefore and spread the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now it went, obviously it went concentrically out to all the world. But interestingly, the biblical narrative records only the movement from Jerusalem westward toward Rome. So in the Bible's story, we have this, at first, this moving away from God, moving eastward, and then with God's people, Abraham, and then with Christ, we're moving more and more westward. Because this is God's design, as he's calling, he's bringing his people back with him. So Ecclesiastes is our professor, who along the way gives us a lecture of, this is how we cope with things while we move westward. Because we're not there yet. But this is how we live on the way. Okay, so let's look at it. Uh, he's going to tell us in chapters 1 and 2 the brevity of life. It is short. So verse 3, the preacher, the professor begins. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. (laughs) Generations come and go. Uh, For this, when I think of things like, um, because I mark time often with baseball seasons. And I mean, goodness, can you name the World Series winner just 10 years ago? Some of you are like, I don't follow baseball, so no. Exactly. People invest, baseball rakes in billions of dollars a year. People invest in this sport, that which most people don't remember the champion of, right? 2002, who won the World Series? Okay, so that one's local. I was hoping everyone would forget it, but at least we remember that one. But that's almost it, right? Do you remember when the Cubs broke their infamous curse? That was one of the biggest World Series ever. 2016, no one knew that, right? Like, just as an example, we don't remember certain rock bands. Like, yeah, we might remember them, but a lot of the little little niches and generations, they come, they go, everything's generational. You look at generations under, you're like, I don't understand what everyone's into. TikTok seems like a huge waste of time, and yet everyone loves it. Like, I don't understand, right? Things come and go from generation to generation. Things are brief, yet we invest so much in the vogue of our time. Like, this is what matters, and really... The preacher saying, really, it doesn't. It's going to come. It's going to go. Nothing remains. Verse 5, except the earth. Verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. 
the wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So you see, he's describing this brevity and this cycle. Like things are just, everything is on this short cycle, and that's it. And then it just happens again. And it's almost, life's brief and life's repetitive. It's like, man, this is incomprehensible that God would put us, subject us under this. But wait, oh, remember, we live east of Eden. Of course it's like this. And so verse 8, he's just continuing to tell us more. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That's why every team that wins the World Series has to gear up and win again. And use your own analogy, right? It's the same thing with everything. Nine, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. Repetition. And there is nothing new under the sun. Or there is nothing new east of Eden. Now, that is not to say that we've never seen anything new. There's an ice cream place called Afters, and they put ice cream inside of a glazed donut. I hadn't seen that before. Things are new, right? That's not what Solomon's saying. The preacher's not saying nothing will ever be invented. Surely the the shoes we have today are a great upgrade from the, the nails that they drove into the sandals that the Romans wore in their army. It's a great upgrade. We've seen things that are new. The iPhone's new, like, you know. But what he's saying is there will never be anything new that will break the cycle of repetition and the brevity of life. Nothing will come and nothing has come and nothing will ever be created that will break life east of Eden. We will never come up with something that will make life in Eden. We will always be east of Eden, no matter what we come up with. There's nothing new east of Eden. There's nothing new under the sun. So verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, or another, see, this has fixed all our problems? No. It has been already in the ages before us. Most of our remedies are just rehashed versions from another generation. Remember repetition and recycling? A lot of, uh, if you've lived long enough, you've probably seen a lot of fashion say, like, oh yeah, we used to do that in the 70s. Why is that back? (laughs) There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be, or it could also read, no remembrance of former people, uh, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. So that's the opening of the lecture from our professor. (laughs) And it all stems from verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? You see that? He's just saying in so many ways, there's no gain. You expend so much, and it just has to repeat, or it doesn't fulfill you. And it's all short. So, with this problem stated, this is the reality of life's brevity, with that stated we now recognize that there's a problem. So the professor is going to tell us, I try to conquer this problem. I try to find what is new under the sun. And he's going to take us on that autobiographical journey and conclude that there's no gain under the sun, like he started off saying. So here we go. Here's his journey. This is, we can see this in our own lives. We see that life is brief, but then we resist that idea. 
No, no, there is gain to be had east of Eden, and I'm going to find it, and I'm going to do it. The professor's like, go ahead, but it's not going to work. So verse 12, he now takes us through his journey. He seeks education. This is how he's going to resist life's brevity. I'm going to get really smart, so I'm going to go to the University of Jerusalem and get my degree. So I, the preacher, have been king over Jerusalem and is in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven, or all that is done east of Eden. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, east of Eden. And behold, all is Havel, vanity, and striving after wind. Or the footnote in the ESV says, feeding on wind. That gives you much more of a sense of emptiness doesn't fill anything. So what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Uh, David shared with me last week that verse, and just shared, in his life, the more he's grown in wisdom, the more knowledge he's gained, the, the more sorrow that comes with it, because he recognizes how miserable life is without Christ. And, and we, we see the true falling in the world, and that's true. Our hearts break, and um, the preacher says, look, education just led me to more... I didn't fix anything. It just made me see how much messier life is than I wanted to admit. So now he pursues pleasure in chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was Havel. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? He stayed in bed and never got up. <laughs> in verse 3, I searched with my heart now to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. What he means there is, I gave myself to wine, but I didn't lose myself in addiction. That's what he's, he's going to say that one other time. Um, so he's, he's totally experimenting. He's an investigator. He's a professor. He's an academic. He's there researching. Where is meaning in life? And he's like, so I tried wine. I became a connoisseur, and I, I tasted, and I, I wrote fancy notes about this one and that one. And, uh, and my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven, outside Eden, during the few days of their life. So I saw all that. Verse 4, now he's going to pursue, that was pleasure, now he's going to pursue um, accomplishments. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Now notice in the language to come, he's going to be basically trying to recreate Eden in his life. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools with which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Now, slaves are troubling when we read that, but of course, back in the ancient times, it was not quite the slavery that our country is guilty of. Um, the way that we have refrigerators, 
We have alarm clocks. We have ovens. We have basically name technology. We have televisions and phones. These things we have today have replaced the slaves of old. Slaves basically did those things for you, like waking you up, cooking your food. So the idea is what he's saying in the mindset of the ancient times. He's saying, I had all kinds of resources at my fingertips. And people took care of their slaves because if you're slave, we all put covers on our phones to protect them. You would do the same to your slave because you want to eat, so don't abuse your slave. So it's a little bit different than we think of slavery. Um, He says, I bought, that was verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold. So now we're getting into possessions, okay? So projects didn't appeal to him. It didn't satisfy him now. Um, Possessions. um, And uh, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. The delight of the children of man. I don't think he meant concubines as the delight of the children of man. I think that was the conclusion to his list of things. All of these were the delight of the children of man. So, yeah, he's going to conclude his journey. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. I didn't lose myself, he's saying. I was an investigator. Um, Verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was hevel and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun." And so you see, he concludes what he told us in his opening line in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He went through his experiences and he concludes the same thing. There was nothing to be gained east of Eden. It's not the stuff we want. It's Eden. It's the presence of God among us that we want. He's learning that. So... That's our resistance to life's brevity. We try to inoculate ourselves from the hevel of life, from being east of Eden, from the shortness and incomprehensibility of life by enveloping ourselves in projects and possessions and pleasures and pursuits of philosophy and whatever it is that is our thing. We fill our lives with it because we're trying to resist the reality that life is short. But now in verse 12 through 23, he's going to come to the awful realization that life is short. And this is what it means. So verse 12, as is chapter 2, verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is Hevel. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, 
seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun, east of Eden, was grievous to me. For all is Hevel, and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet, oh, and by the way, you know who Solomon left his kingdom to? Do you remember? The terrible Jeroboam and Rehoboam who fought over the kingdom and the whole kingdom split right after Solomon. Israel went downhill fast. Yeah, didn't matter how wise he was, it was all passed down to a fool anyways. Uh, where was I? I? That was a random stop. I'm in middle 19. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is Havel. So I turned, this is verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil of striving of heart with which he toils under the sun, toiling and slaving east of Eden? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is Hevel. So that's our realization. After we resist the brevity of life and Hevel, now we realize, oh, the brevity of life means I'm going to die. And then when you think that I'm going to die, you realize that everybody dies the same way. You guys have all heard the famous study that's been going on for millennium, and they keep coming to the same conclusion. Ten out of ten people die. But here's the thing. We can think. We can think that this preacher is being cantankerous and that he's a cynic and that he's pessimistic and he's just, he's just bringing a dark rain cloud over our Christian parade and thanksgiving to God. Like, we can look at him that way. But if we find his writings and his preaching incomprehensible, it's probably because unlike him, we haven't stared death down in the face long enough and seriously enough. For if we do take the time to actually look at death, rather than resist it with all of our games and all of our pretending to be busy and important people, if we actually look at death, we will come to our professor's same conclusion. That, oh boy, we're messed up. And whatever I do about it, I can't change that. David Gibson, whose incredible book, I I think his book was um, Living Backward. It's looking at Ecclesiastes from the perspective of death. He says this, and this really hit me because this was me until I'm reading some perspectives. He says, if this sounds too bleak and pessimistic, which is what I had always thought of Ecclesiastes, bleak and pessimistic. If this sounds too bleak and pessimistic, I suspect it's because you haven't reflected at length on the brevity of life. You haven't thought much about the reality of death. But once we recognize what life outside Eden really means, and nothing on this earth can actually fulfill the Eden, the presence of God, which we're yearning for, then we will be saying amen to the preacher's words. And, and then asking death, or learning how to live through the perspective of death. 
Nothing can teach us how to live, Ecclesiastes is going to show. Nothing can teach us how to live like death can teach us. And so, contrary to how it sounds, um, there's actually some hope in here. He's actually doing us a favor. So, chapter 2, verse 24, we come to our remedy for life's brevity. Is there any hope? Oh, there's hope. And this will be sprinkled throughout the book. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's where the saying comes from. There's nothing he should do but to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. Wait a minute, you might be thinking. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Isn't that like carpe diem? Isn't that hedonism? Isn't that YOLO? One life to live. You only live once. There it is. You only live once. Um, isn't, isn't that just like what the God of this age is telling us to do? No, it actually isn't. What the preacher's doing is he's come to this conclusion after his experience and after everything he's telling us. He's saying at the end of the day, because what we do brings no gain, stop trying to save the world. Stop trying to be God. Stop trying to plant the Garden of Eden and make it grow with your black thumb. It's not going to happen. Instead, eat, drink, and be merry. Not because that's all there is. We believe there's way more than that. Carpe diem says, because this is all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is given to us east of Eden. In other words, life is a gift. That God has given us life as a gift to receive, not as something to gain. In Ecclesiastes, our professor is telling us, slow down, recognize where you are, so that you can know how to live in your pilgrimage westward toward Eden. Life's world, life in God's world is gift, not gain. David Gibson, one more time, said that death can radically enable us to enjoy life. By revitalizing all that we do in our days under the sun, I'm sorry, by relativizing All that we do in our days under the sun, death can change us from people who want to control life for gain into people who find deep joy in receiving life as a gift. In other words, the people and the things and the situations around you, are these things that we're going to grab and manipulate for our desires? Or are we going to receive as coming from God and enjoy So the professor is teaching us that after much exploration, we were not made to achieve life. I did it. This is who I am because you're just going to be forgotten. Life is brief and it's going to be passed down to a fool. We're not meant to achieve life. We were made to receive life as given to us from God. That's his conclusion after his journey. This is how we deal with the brevity of life. This is how we deal with that incomprehensibility of Hevel. We were made to receive life as God's gift. I think that's clear as what he's saying. We're made to receive life as God's gift. So let's keep reading what he's saying. I, I forgot to finish the paragraph. Um, so let's, let's reread verse 24. So this is his conclusion here. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. 
It's a gift. We receive it. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is Havel and a striving after wind. The last part, the part about the sinner, busy gathering and collecting just to give it to someone else. That's Havel. So eat, drink, and find enjoyment in life because this is all a gift from God. Because this is what there is. Um, in other words, food is not just a means to another end. All the pleasures of life are not just means to something else, to make us better, to make us gain something, to hack life and figure out how to master it. It's really popular right now in our culture. I don't know if you pick up on that top-selling books. It's all about how to master life. You are God, and you're going to master it. No, we're east of Eden. It's not going to happen. That's what the professor is saying. He's like, just for, save yourself all the reading headaches. This is reality. Receive life as a gift from God. But here's what we do. We're made to receive life as God's gift and then return it back to him in thanksgiving. The act of thanksgiving is giving God's world back to him. You ever thought about how we say thanksgiving? We don't just say thanks. The act of it is thanksgiving because what we have been given, we are offering up to him as a sacrifice. And this is the purpose of man east of Eden, our professor is saying. Now, I've been very aware of Psalm 50 uh, for a long time because I found this, this psalm to be very profound and it says exactly what the professor is saying. You might want to turn to Psalm 50. It's, that, it's worth um, making a note in your Bible for. It's, it's a good one because it really staples down this concept that we exist to receive God's gifts and to give it back to him in thanks. Uh, verse, cha- Psalm chapter 50, Psalms in the middle of the Bible. Chapter 50 is a third through the Psalms. Uh, at Psalm 50 verse 10 is a decent spot to start. This is what God is saying. This is God actually speaking in 50 verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, mine. I know all the birds of the hills, And all that moves in the field is mine. So what can you give him? (laughs) God, I bet you haven't seen this before. (laughs) If I were hungry, this is verse 12. So knowing that, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. I mean, I've got a cosmos pantry loaded with stuff. I can just, I don't need your help. Thank you very much. Verse 13, anyways, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The rhetorical answer is no, of course he he doesn't. So then what can we give him to please him? What is the business of man? It's verse 14. Now the psalm, uh, God says to us, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. At the heart of this glorifying him is that we offer thanksgiving as a sacrifice. He doesn't want a bull. We don't do that anyways. But he doesn't want the other forms of that in your life. <laughs> um, 
He doesn't want us to offer this cheap. He, look, receive what I've given to you and now sacrifice it back to me. This is how man glorifies God. And then as if that wasn't clear, he reiterates in verse 23, the end of the psalm. Verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. So what is the business of man under the sun? What is our task east of Eden? It's to receive life as a gift. Not to use it to try to inoculate ourselves against Havel and the brevity of life, but it's to receive it in gratitude and offer it back in thanksgiving. This is the role of a Christian. So, when you begin your day and end your day with prayer, hopefully you do, (laughs) when we do, a huge component of prayer is the lifting up of our thanks to God. Oh God, you're so good. You've given me this and this and this to enjoy and this to please me and this. And we give it back to him in thanksgiving. Because the Christian who does such is a grateful Christian and is a joyful Christian. It is impossible to live a lifestyle of thanksgiving and to be a Christian who brings everyone down in gloom and despair. It is nearly impossible. But the raising up of thanks raises the world with it. And this is the job of the Christian as priest between the world and God. We are to lift it up to him. And that joy that we express is what all those who are in this, this vicious repetition and cycle of Havel will say, wait a minute, that's life. That's life, the thanksgiving and enjoyment and receiving life as a gift from God. Not striving for gain because it's all going to perish. So, this is our westward pilgrimage to Eden. The giving of thanks because we receive life as a gift from God. Let us pray.